wind energy, and its impact on our lives. But how does it really affect or work? Today, uh, Master Miguel and I, we both are gonna make the science behind it edible for everybody. Así que, toma pulque y come nopal, que el pulque podcast va a comenzar. It's my pleasure to welcome to this space, Dr. Um, Master Miguel, uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? Very well, thank you. Happy to be here. Great. Um, how would you describe yourself? As a person or as a professional? Uh, let's listen both. How about it? Well, it's, um, I describe myself like um, as, a, as a very straight person. So what you see is what you get. Okay. And professionally? You are a civil engineer working here in, in Taiwan? Right, yes. Uh, I've been here for two years and a half in Taiwan. Yeah. I originally came uh, for another uh, job, and I'm now working for the offshore wind industry here and uh, doing the, um, in one of the projects, one of the many projects for offshore wind. Okay, for the Taiwan. people listening, of course, you can listen to our accent. Here are two Mexicans talking in English. Uh, where do you come from, Miguel? From Puebla, Mexico. Puebla, Mexico, like the movie Coco, huh? Exactly. Okay, great. Um, I know that you studied in the in WAP, in the University of Puebla, and mm -hmm. then you moved to Northern Europe to study uh, things more related to, um, let's say, okay, I let you talk. Yes, yes, I was born in Puebla, yeah. and I studied civil engineering in the University of Puebla. When I finished, I wanted to study a master's degree in structural engineering. So I went to the UK to study uh, structural engineering at the University of Sheffield. When I finished, I went to Aberdeen, Scotland. Yeah. And then I started working there for the oil and gas industry as a structural engineer. After a little while, I started to do another master's degree in, in project management at the University of Aberdeen. Yeah. After a few years, uh, we moved from there to, to uh, Madrid, to Spain, and then we were traveling, well, in different locations, no? from Madrid to uh, UK, London, and then Peru, Bolivia, Chile, and then uh, Scotland, Spain again, Vietnam, and Taiwan. Okay, and all of those places you've been, is it because you, you've been working in the same area? In the same, tell us a, a little bit more about your your professional life. Right. Okay. So, yeah, in all the places, it, all the moves have been because of war. Right? That that's for sure. Right? And um, uh, what I've been doing is um, mainly working for the energy industry in different kind of projects. Uh, first in the oil and gas industry, so as a structural engineer, and then as a project manager, and uh, delivering projects in different locations, no? so in places like Peru, so I was working in, a, in an LNG plant, export terminal LNG plant, Yeah. and then from there in Bolivia I was in a gas plant, and then in, in, in Edinburgh I was, uh, I moved to renewables in Edinburgh, so I started to work in, in the offshore wind, so one of the first projects in the UK for offshore wind, so I was there for almost five years in three projects. And then from there I went to Spain. But in Spain I was working for a project that it was floating, floating wind. So one concept of 
eh, a turbine eh, on, a, on a floater. So an interesting, interesting top, uh, project actually because one of the first ones in the world. Well, uh, what is it about? Or well, it's a, why do you it's think a wind, it's, it's a so wind turbine. It's a wind turbine, but in a floating structure. No? So okay. In the sea, no? in the North Sea, no? in Portugal. Yeah. Uh, well, not in the North Sea, in the, in the North Atlantic. No? And uh, it's, it's an interesting project because it's the first sort of semi-commercial, semi-pilot semi uh, project for uh, offshore floating, uh, offshore um, wind for floating structure. And I was going to ask you, you just mentioned that you worked in Bolivia mm -hmm. with uh, working with gas. I know it was liquefied gas. No, that was natural gas, but no, natural no, gas, no okay. liquefied. Liquefied was in, in, in Peru. Can you tell us a little bit more about the liquefied gas? Because I know you you consider it something as a green energy. Yes, liquefied natural gas is a very clean, um, very clean hydrocarbon. I mean, compared to oil or, or even all, all the other gases, no? because there are different other kind of gases. No? But liquefied uh, the natural gas as such is, is very clean when producing electricity. You know, when you burn it, it, it it emits very little CO2, so yeah. it's actually quite green-ish, I guess. But the interesting part with the liquefied natural gas is, it's called liquefied natural gas because it has to go through a process to convert it from gas to liquid. Yeah. So in that process is, uh, you reduce the temperature of the gas to a minus 152 degrees in the process. Yeah. And then it converts into gas. So, but when converting into gas, the the, one cubic meter of liquefied gas is equivalent to 600 cubic meters of gas in gas state. No? So as you can see, it is actually quite uh, profitable for people, for the developers, no? for the gas operator. No? So it's, is it like 100 times? 600 times. 600 times smaller. When, when converted into, into liquid. No? Yeah. So when you convert it into liquid, but it has to be to minus 152 degrees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it starts to get more uh, temperature, so it starts to convert into gas and it starts to expand. Yeah. Like, um, we can take uh, uh, another example that it would be trains that vapor uh, is b way bigger, water vapor is bigger than liquid water. So uh, it's the same in this type of gas that the liquid uh, the l volume of the liquid is smaller than the volume of the gas. Absolutely, that's and the principle. And then it is transported normally by by ship, no? so in the big ships, LNG ships. So when you see the LNG ships on the sea, whatever you see there is 600 times more volume what they're taking in gas. Okay. So this is actually very efficient way. No? It's a very efficient uh, hydrocarbon, a very efficient product. No? And what made you be moving like from different types of energy? Well, it was and a company. Like uh, energy. Oh, it was a company. Yeah, yeah, because the company I used to work, they were an energy company. So they did oil, gas, and even in gas, different kind of gas. And then also uh, uh, renewable, no? in this case, offshore wind. Yeah. That Can you tell that, us that, a little that bit? That's the way, all the way until Vietnam. No? In Vietnam, I left. That's when I came here. And can you tell us a little bit more of, of the offshore wind turbines? That is what you are working on right now? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Here, well, here, um, let's start here in Taiwan the, the, to set the, the, to, to, to set the, the example here. No? So Taiwan 
in the region is one of the countries that is developing offshore wind. No? Why offshore wind? Because offshore wind has a few advantages. No? It produces more electricity, so most more energy. It is out in the sea, so it is out of people's uh, view because in reality these wind turbines, they are very visually intrusive. No? So you have them, it's not the same to have it there in the, in the sea that have it there in, a, in your backyard or in a field nearby. Yeah, yeah. So, and they produce more because the Taiwan Strait is one of one of the places where cost, constant wind all year round, so it's very reliable the wind in here. So whatever you estimate is very reliable. Eh? So it's a very it's a very good place for offshore wind, the Taiwan Strait. Eh? And the Taiwan, as such, compared to other regions, uh, to other countries in the region, is more advanced. Eh? So Taiwan has uh, developed or has uh, currently um, deployed one project, the Formosa one, and then the, there are a few other projects as part of the round two that are um, that are being developed at the moment. The rounds are the rounds that the government has announced in terms of developing projects. So you have round one, which was a prototype with a pilot, round two, which is the one that is now to all the way to 2026, which is 5.5 gigawatts, what the government has as a target. And then is the round three, which is additional 10 gigawatts from 2025, 26 to like 2030, no? 2030 something. Um, how big, I'm gonna make this question, how big is a megawatt? Or, because people listening might be like, okay, it produces that amount of money, but, but that amount of energy. Right. But how much is it really, or? Well, to have to have context into it, no? onshore the wind turbines that one sees when one goes driving along the countryside, no? those are no bigger than two megawatts or two point six megawatts. No? Yeah. So they are relatively small. Offshore, the smallest currently being used is eight point six megawatts or so. No? Taiwan has uh, plans to use turbines uh, up to like fourteen megawatts. No? So the two one of the or the project I'm working on is with a 14 megawatt turbine from Siemens. No? And the, the difference in, in this um, quantity of megawatt that they can produce, it is in the rotor. No? So the yeah. rotor, the diameter of the blade. So you have three blades. No? Yes. So the three blades have a diameter. No? The, that, the, the, that is called the rotor diameter. No? So the, the rotor diameter for onshore is no more than 60 meters. So even less than that, 40 meters, the diameter. 40 meters, okay. The diameter. So and then how high it is, because it must be a little bit higher than the... The tip of the blade line. is, yeah. you normally have something they call air gap, so and the space between the tip of the blade at the bottom, so that when it rotates, doesn't hit, or doesn't harm anybody. No? Okay. So you have like 20 meters, so plus 40 meters, which is the rotor diameter, so it will be 60 meters to the tip of the blade. No? Okay. 60 meters. But offshore, they are a really different category because the 14 megawatts, for example, is uh, 222 meters diameter. So considering, 222. considering that the football pitch is 100 meters, it's like two football pitch plus a bit more, no? the size of the diameter. So each blade is bigger than the size of a the leg field. of the football pitch. No? by 20 meters, a little more than 20 meters. So they are big, big structures. And that is 20, 
222 meters plus the air gap. Offshore, you have a bigger air gap because you have the sea. No? So you have the sea, you need clearance from the wave. The maximum wave is normally around 15, 20 meters plus some clearance that you require. So the, the structure is, or the height of the, the tip of the blade is approximately 240 meters or no more, 250, 260 meters. Okay, and you just compare the ones onshore and offshore. What is the difference in like, uh, if I'm at the beach, how, how, how far are the onshore turbines gonna be? And the offshore, how far are them gonna be from the beach? The, the onshores are in line, no? They can be in the hills, so they can be anywhere. Oh, on, not, not necessarily sorry. in the beach, no? So they can be anywhere. So you have some others that are called near shore, so which is not really far, not really deep in the beach, the just, just in the water, just touching water. No? Yeah. In Taiwan, I think in, in some of the Formosa one, I think they are not far, maybe 5K or so, so they're very close. No? But some of the projects are truly far. No? So for example, the project I'm working on, this is 50 kilometers away no? from, okay. from shore, no? 50 kilometers. And there are a few of the projects that are 50 kilometers or more. No? And um, what are the difference between having the turbines on land and in the sea? Like, let's say inefficiency, which you just mentioned this by the size, Efficiency, like another would be, uh, um, let's say, the impact on the ecosystems. Well, yes, it's more, I guess it's for onshore, the, it's the space. No? In places like Taiwan, which is small, which is also the case of UK, no? which is a little bit bigger island, but it's also dense populated. In, in places like here, they have to go offshore, no? because onshore, there is no space. No? So the, the land is used for other purposes, not for, not for turbine. No? Yeah, yeah. And for example, Taiwan, one of the main problems is all the mountain. No? So there are so many mountains, you cannot install the turbines onshore. No? And the, the flow, how free the flow of the wind uh, goes, no flows, it is how much energy you can actually extract out of the wind. No? Yeah. So in the sea, there is no obstruction. No? It's just flat surface. No? There are no mountains. There are no buildings. A little, bit, a little bit of no shear, as they buildings. call it. A little bit of shear, as they call it, but it's very little. Yeah. But in the mountains or, or in, in onshore, you have trees. You have the even yeah, yeah. the even the shear with the soil or with the with the ground is different than in the sea. No? The water is less less friction, less shear. Oh, okay. But onshore is a lot of shear, no? so the, which creates turbulence. No? So the, the, the wind doesn't flow freely, it has turbulence, that it has an effect on the blade, no? and reduces a little bit the production compared to, compared to offshore. Okay, and if uh, the offshore turbines are, you just said, how many kilometers away? It can be from the beach to 80, 50, Let's say 100 or more. 50 kilometers away. How do you bring that energy to onshore? in cable, no? so the cables. E export cable, no? as they call them. So so you have, used to have an idea, so it, depending on the size of your, your wind farm. So if your wind farm is, I don't know, um, 280 megawatts, and you use 14 megawatts turbines, you, you need 20 turbines. No? Yes. No? So 
those 20 turbines, you wouldn't put them all together, generating an independent sending the energy to the land. No? So yeah. you need to gather all the information into something and then send one cable. No? Oh, okay. The farther away you are, the more you need to put them together no? and the bigger the, the project as well. No? So you collect them and you put them in what they what they are called loops. So each of the each of the turbines so they are in a loop. Most most of them are in loops of five. So five turbines in a loop, and then that loop normally goes to a no offshore substation that collects all the information, all the um, uh, energy. No? Once the energy gets there, depending on how far the the offshore substation is from land, you might send the energy as uh, AC energy, so the, the turbine produces in AC energy. No? Yeah. So you, you produce in AC and then convert it in DC, if it is far from beach, and then send it as uh, DC energy or DC uh, uh, current. Current, yeah. Because it's more efficient. No? So that it has, menos, uh, has a, a minor losses, energy losses compared to AC. No? So that's why the, a lot of developers decide to convert it into DC First. if they are more than 80 kilometers then normally you put an offshore substation it gets to land to um, an onshore substation and it converted into AC to connect to the national grid and those stations uh, offshore how are they they built like um, you just mentioned at the beginning that there are some that are meant to be floating Yeah, so no, but the, 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 well, that will be depending on the project. No? So the, the, the floating or not floating, it depends on the water depth where you put in your project. No? Okay. If you have your, if your wind farm is, um, all your wind farm is with fixed structures, most likely your, your offshore substation will be with fixed structures well because it's the same water depth. No? Okay. But if um, to use floating or fixed structure, it, it depends on the water depth. No? And is the water depth because the deeper is the bigger the 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 structure, and the bigger it is, is the the most the more difficult is to fabricate, the more difficult is to transport, the more difficult is to install, no? and not only difficult but expensive, no? so it gets mega expensive. No? So the the break or the split between fixed and floating structures is approximately 80 meters. No? Any structure bigger than 80 meters or, or in water that's bigger than 80 meters will be fixed, will be too big. So you go to a floating structure. Floating structure, you can install it uh, even farther away, but then you need an, an offshore substation, a floating offshore substation. Yeah. The industry is not there yet, so the only floating project that there are, there are a few floating projects in the world. So there are only like two, One is the Windflow Atlantic, the one that was working, no? which actually was the first commercial project. Where was it? It's in the in the North Atlantic, no? Port, in front of Portugal. Yeah. You have Portugal and the north of Portugal. In the Atlantic, you have uh, Viana do Castelo, and the project is in front of Viana do Castelo. No? So it's 25 megawatts, no? three turbines. No? But there is another one in Norway. It's called the High Wind, but they have a, they had a different concept as well for floating. No? Uh, so there are two currently working is two projects floating in the world. And how about uh, how are they installed? If they are floating, how how do they don't go away? Uh, well, they are anchored. No? 
So the, the advantage of floating is not only that the, you can take them farther away in deeper water, it's also you can fabricate it in, in a dock, in a dry dock, so, or in a shipbuilding place, eh? depending on the, the, the concept, but there are a few concepts, but the, the proven technology one, they, they have built them in, in uh, dry dock, so where they normally the ships are being built or given maintenance. So they build them there in Setubal in Portugal, yeah, it's one of the ports south of Lisbon. So they build in there the, the structure. Then, because it's a dry dock, once they finish, they floated it and they just pull them. Eh? So floating, yes, they pull them out, and they were taken from there to another port in in Portugal. It's called Sines, which is north of uh, Lisbon. And then the turbines arrive there. The turbines arrive. They put it next to the quayside, install the turbine, everything. And then the whole thing was pulled all the way to the final destination. Yes. Before they arrived, another contractor installed the chains, so the anchor, it was a drag anchor. Yeah. The drag anchor, literally, they deploy it and they pull it until until get certain tension. Yeah. So there is literally a vessel applying tension into the, into the mooring line. When they get to the tension, they leave it floating. They leave it there ready for the turbine to arrive, when it's arrived, they connect it. And they connect the cables as well. So there are some floating cables as well, well, semi-floating cables where the energy goes. And um, how about the non-floating ones, the stationary ones? How are uh, they built? Fixed. Fix. The fixed ones. Well, the fixed ones, they're what they're using here in, in Taiwan. No? There are a few concepts in there. There are two most use of most popular concepts are here and anywhere in the world is the monopile okay. and is a jacket. How is the monopile or it's just what is one, the difference? It's just one section, it's a one circular section, yeah. a steel circular section that is installed in the, in, the, in the water and they place it on the ground of the seabed and with a hammer they hammer it no? to a depth that has been defined by design. No? So when they do the design they need to, to uh, de define how much has to be installed. And they install it with a hammer. Once it's installed, they pull on the top of it the turbine. And um, you just said that they hammered. Is, it, uh, is there any consequence that will happen in the, in the ecosystem of the sea? It, it is, yeah, there is, and there are a few big problem, no? because the, the noise that it generates is, is actually quite high decibels. No? And this, uh, the, the, that kind of noise from hammering is, uh, is like a, a wave, impact wave, no? so it can really damage some of the marine mammals particularly. No? Yeah. So it can truly damage uh, marine mammals or can hurt them. No? So what is done is they have to monitor that there are no marine mammals and they start with, with the ramping up in terms of energy because what they do is transmitting energy into the, into the pile, no? into, the yeah, yeah. into the monopile no? with the hammer. No? So they start by ramping up 20%, uh, 25% efficiency and they were ramping up until 100%. So the operation is hammering literally and um, you can take a day or so. No? Okay, and this, you just said that it affects the mammals because when they are swimming in the water, they usually use, let's say, a type of signal 
that it's a uh, sensor, no? The acoustic sensors they do have, no? So and that's what they use to communicate themselves and also to measure and to to measure distances or so. On. If there is hammering with the high decibels in there because it's a it's a wave, it's a it's an, an impact wave, no? But it, the noise in water travels five times faster than in than in the in no like now in air, no? so it can be. It uh, can be little for the marine mammals, for sure. No? So there are, there are systems that they use to try to reduce that, which is uh, bubbles. So they deploy next to the pile or, or monopile that they want to install. They deploy like rings that the, the, the release bubbles. No? Okay. Because it is certain uh, research has said that with the bubbles and the noise, the noise will be contained within the within the bubble, air bubble, bubbles. The, the, the bubble curtain. Right? Yeah, yeah. So here in Taiwan, they use it quite often no? for pile installation. They use bubble curtains, which is it is expensive and it's time consuming. No? That is for the monopile. And also for the jacket. The jackets the are jacket. also installed with piles, which are smaller, but they also install with piles. Okay, and how about? Uh, okay, we just talk about the animals that are under the sea. How about above the sea? Like birds. You like mean. birds, yeah. Well, the, the, the birds can be affected for sure. No? And that's one of the main problems in a lot of wind farms. No? Yeah, Particularly if they are in the migratory route of any particular or any specific species. No? Okay. Yeah, because you just, um, you've mentioned uh, before about uh, that in Europe, there there are many wind farms that have been canceled, and what I mean before is in c other conversations. But can you share it yeah, uh, yeah, with us sure. here? Yeah, for sure. This uh, it depends on where the wind farm is going to be. So there are a lot of uh, studies that you need to perform before you get given the consent to build it. No? Yeah. Some of those are environmental studies, so you need to get your environmental impact assessment no, of your project. No? Your environmental impact assessment needs to be approved before you can do any works. No? And one of the things that they study is the impact precisely on, on different kind of animals, no? uh, the fish and also the, the, the birds, no? and, some other, and some other aspects as well. No? But yes, in some places, the windfall sites proposed, they are in the migratory routes of some of the birds, and some of those birds, they fly within the range of the blades, and the, yeah, you can, they can completely kill them. Huh? Yeah, For but sure. um, we just talked about it like uh, before the podcast started that it, they, this impact is not actually big like, or like super big. Why? Because of so, there are some studies that say that around 200,000 uh, birds get killed every year because of wind farms. Mm -hmm. But there are some other studies that say is that let's say communication towers, they keep, they kill 6.6 .6 million birds per year. Right. So talking from 100,000 to millions, there's a big uh, scale. Big difference, yeah. And buildings, there are 600 million birds per year. Oof. So actually um, wind farms, they don't affect that much, right? Well, compared to other, no, no. But it's still, it's still a problem for sure. And the industry is very fully aware, no? and they do, the industry tries 
to mitigate the problem for sure. No? So it, there are the studies and there are uh, tests and many other things that they do. No? For example, here in Taiwan, some of the wind farms need to have a bigger corridor. So you have your wind farm and there's a bigger corridor in the middle. So you need to leave a space for the for the birds to, birds to fly. fly in between. No? So because the birds, well, they learn, no? like any other animal, no? they will learn to avoid to avoid them. Okay, and um, how other challenges do you find in the industry? Let's say uh, they are in the sea, storms, light storms, and... Um, well, in Taiwan particularly, earthquakes. Well, it's uh, typhoons and earthquakes, which you don't have in Europe. No? So offshore wind started in Europe, well, in Northern Europe. No? Yeah. But for them, in, from that sense, it was easy, because you don't have earthquakes, and you don't have uh, typhoons in, in Europe. No? Yeah. So trying to do all this now here, it is complicated because uh, uh, apart from the challenges as such, the, the standards do not take into account yet for offshore wind, um, uh, earthquakes, or typhoons into the sign. So the currently joint industry project from, from led by uh, some organizations to develop the standards for typhoon and for earthquake and other, and other aspects for a uh, design of offshore wind foundation. If there's a typhoon, of course, the, the turbine is going to start spinning faster. No, no, the, the no? all the turbines have a cut-in and cut-off speed. No? So cut-in, it is uh, three meters per second. So when they actually start producing energy, anything below that, they not produce. And 25 meters per second, no? that's cut-off. If the speed goes 25 meters per second, they stop it. And the, the blades can rotate, so they tilt and they rotate against the wind yeah. so that the, they don't catch any wind, or little wind only. Ah, okay, so they, the, all, those all these turbines also have sensors that make them rotate. Well, sensors and people in order to get their operators yeah, yeah. Uh, somewhere in an operating room, somewhere in land. Oh, they're okay. monitoring, so because they, they have to monitor it. No? And how about the earthquakes? Bueno, for, for earthquakes. Can they bring them down or? Uh, well, I guess they could, no? They, they haven't been, <laughs> they haven't had any big earthquake yet, no? But they could. The thing is that turbines here, they are designed currently, the earthquake to the building code in Taiwan, which is a return period of 475 years. No? So oil and gas, for example, the, the platforms, they are uh, designed for like 2,000 years return period of an airway. So it's a big difference. So we will see with time, I guess. Okay, and um, just um, in order to say, and don't, don't leave it behind, uh, these turbines, of course, we're all looking at them rotating very slow, mm -hmm. but then they make rotate sometimes in the gearbox, like like a smaller gear or some other type yeah. of stuff? Yeah, well, there are two kinds. The direct drive, so the rotation, as you see, that's the rotation of the drive. Yeah. And the other one is the gearbox, no? The, the is accelerated through mechanism. Yeah. Rotates here, but it has accelerated, so it make the gearbox to go faster. No? But they, those have a... Um, to my knowledge, they have more problems in terms of maintenance. So the industry, as far as I know, 
uh, they're trying to use uh, a gearbox you know, because they require more maintenance. Okay, and um, as I just said, these gearbox are more or less like a bicycle, right? That there's a bigger gear and a smaller gear sometimes. Does it have something to do with your love for bicycles and exercise? <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, but um, I should maybe generate some energy with my bicycle. Because um, I think it, it would be very cool to share with our audience that you are, I think, uh, a top athlete. Well, not top athlete, no, but uh, yeah, I'm a fan athlete, so I like it, I like it. Uh, what type of exercise do you do? Well, all kinds, you know, I do cycling, well, mainly triathlon, really, and um, running, and a few things. You know? So I have, on Friday, I have the King of the Mountains, which is 105 kilometers, plus 3,000 meters elevation, 3,200, so in Hualiel, so through Taroko. Yeah. And that's on Friday. And I also have, I also have like running in the mountains, you know? so the trail running. You know? So I have a trail run next month. 20 kilometers or something, and then the Ironman in Challenge Taiwan. There's a full Ironman, which is the very long distance Ironman, um, very long distance triathlon. Ironman, Iron Turbines, thank you very much for being in this podcast and coming here to share all your experience and all your knowledge with us. Well, thanks for the invitation. It was a pleasure to have you here, Miguel. Hope you find and it see you next time. Thank you. Listo. Sí.